Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to drive some of you nuts today because I'm going to go backwards. We're going to start towards the end of the New Testament here with 1 Timothy, with a book, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this young man who he's training and bringing up. And then we're going to end up back in the Old Testament, and then we're going to end up back in 1 Timothy before all is said and done. Pastor Brian told those young men a couple weeks ago to fight for your teammate. And the Apostle Paul starts with that same intensity, that same intensity that you'd want the team to bring on the field. And he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, fight the good fight of faith. And then he keeps up the intensity and he says, take hold. The words take hold means seize, to, to hang on to it aggressively with everything that you've got. And what are we taking hold of? We're taking hold of eternal life. And what does that mean? How do you take hold of something that's yet to come? When he refers to eternal life, the Apostle Paul is not talking about what happens after you die, but he's talking about the life that God gives right now. It's both physical and spiritual. And the important thing by the word that he uses is that it's a life that is sustained by God himself. It's a life that is truly life. Now, everything that's written down for the most part in the letters that the apostle Paul and that Luke and that others give us, Peter and John, a lot of it builds on what Jesus has said in the gospels. And we've been studying the life of Jesus all year long. We've been in Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily because last year we spent so much time in the book of John, but it, it all builds and they're building a lot. First Timothy six builds quite a bit upon an encounter that Jesus had with a young man in Matthew chapter 19. So we're going backwards now. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16 says this, behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, you may have heard this story before, but I want us to see it today through the lens of Jesus raising the bar for us in our lives. We have called this series Level Up. We're looking at a handful of phrases where Jesus took practices where everything seems to be good, where everything seems to be fine, and then he raises the bar. He takes it up a notch to give us a life that is truly life. And he's talking to someone that many of your Bibles that you're looking at today may refer to as a rich young ruler. What does that mean? Well, in today's terms, that would be a millennial app developer. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about here? This is like a high school dropout who then designs something and puts it on iTunes that we're all buying and paying for at $1.99 and then all the other stuff they get for it. Right. I'm picturing Sebastian Knutson. You know who he is. He is the reason why if you're married or if you're dating somebody, he is the reason why she may not be talking to you. Okay, because he is the man who led the team that developed Candy Crush. And Sebastian today, bless his heart, is worth $400 million after developing Candy Crush. So picture him, if you will, as the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler who's got seemingly everything anybody would want in this life. He comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, just like in first Timothy, you need to understand this. He's not asking Jesus, how do I make sure I go to heaven when I die? But rather he's asking him, how do I have a better quality of life? How do I have a life that lasts? How do I live a life that outlasts 
me? How do I live a life that counts for something? It's a powerful and profound question, especially when you take into account he is asking the question to the creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So I don't know about you, but I'm going to kind of lean into his answer. If anybody's going to speak into the purpose of life and where we can count on what he says to be true, it's Jesus. And so in verse 17, he answers him. And he says to him, back to the rich young ruler, app developer, he says, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so Jesus again uses a word for life. He uses the Greek word that was written down. Zoe is what he used. You've probably heard the word before. You may have eaten in her kitchen. It's an important word. Because the word that Jesus refers to can refer to both now and later. Again, it's a, it's a word that is both physical and spiritual. It carries with it the idea, again, how do I live a life sustained by our self-sustaining God? And Jesus answers him, and Jesus knew the, the conversation was going to progress. But Jesus says, hold to the commandments. Obey God's word. If you will follow the principles here, you'll have a good and moral life. Yay. What if that were the only goal? And for some of you, it's your purpose of maybe of being in church today. Cause you're just wanting to make sure you're being good. Made time for church, even after homecoming and staying up late and watching them. And it was awesome. And I'm now I'm doing the thing. And the rich young ruler says, I'm doing all that. And then he starts going through some 10 commandments. It's interesting. He says, I haven't killed anybody this week. He says, I haven't stolen anything. I don't sleep around. I'm a good neighbor. And then the young man says to Jesus, listen to this. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now this is profound. This is a guy who's got everything anybody would want. He can buy anything that he would want. And he's a good, moral, God-fearing guy. And he says, something is missing. I mean, what a moment of profound honesty. And I can't help but wonder whether or not some of us would say to this question, I, I get it. I go to church I help provide for my family. I don't lie to people. I love my wife and my kids a reasonable amount. But there has got to be more. There's got to be something I am missing. This cannot be as good as it gets. So Jesus continues. He answers him. Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go And sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had created an app and he was filthy rich and he had a lot of stuff. I can't do that. He has just admitted that something is missing. 
And he's asked the question to the author of life who has given him the answer for him to a full and abundant life, a life worth seizing, a life worth having. He's got it from the creator himself, eye to eye, face to face. And he says, I can't do that. And he walks away. Jesus says, this is what you can do if you want to be complete, if you want to be perfect. He can't do it. Now, as we get to talking about possessions and and money and how Jesus draws this direct correlation between that and life, I I want to set you at ease for just a moment, okay? Jesus says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. But we're not going to do that quite like that today. I'm not going to ask you to sell your car before you leave the church because we're going to need you to get your kids and get them out of here and take them back home. But understand, this is so crucial. There is a direct connection between how what we treat, what God has given us from the air in our lungs to the way we use our time. There's a direct connection between that and seizing a life that you cannot walk away from. I mean, for some of you, that, that pit in your stomach feeling that there has got to be more coming from a belief down deep inside your bones, that that belief that there's got to be more for my life and career, there's got to be more for my marriage, there's got to be more for my family, there's got to be more than just being a good person, just getting from point A to point B every day. Jesus agrees with the premise that there has to be more. There is a life to seize. There is a life to take hold of. And the creator in the flesh tells us what to do and we cannot walk away. Jesus has this this look in his eye. He's inviting them into this. He says, you can follow me. And this guy shows a look, Jesus in the eye, lack of faith for a love of his own comfort, which he has already admitted as mediocrity. It's tragic, but yet it happens again and again and again, doesn't it? Because we hear God's word. We want it to transform us. We want to seize life. But for the sake of our own comfort and routine and perhaps a a doubt in what God might ask us to do, we walk away from it time and time and time again. But Jesus gives us the key. He says, listen, for Jesus, obeying the commandments and living morally in this context is a given. But here's where Jesus raises the bar and challenges us to level up. He says, consider everything that God has put in your hands as being for other people and for God's work in the world. And if you consider everything that God has put in your hands that way, then your life will be full to overflowing, full to overflowing. And then Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. And in this case, he is talking about where those who put their faith and trust in Jesus go after this life. You will have treasure stored up for you in heaven. Keep going backwards with me, if you will, Matthew chapter six, because Jesus has already talked about this once before. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter six, verse 19, he says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths 
nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, you know this one, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you a question. What do you treasure most? What do you treasure most? I love being able to ask that from this vantage point, from a stage and being able to see all you guys because there, there are a few of the smart guys in the room who just, just right then, they just slid their arm around her. <laughs> baby, you know. It's not Nick Saban, it's you, baby. I, I love you the most, love you the most. And if we were all honest, I think we would say, yeah, the, the people that God has put in our lives, the friendships, the, the family, what, what, whatever it might be. But let's go beyond that for just a moment. Of all the things that you own, what are you most proud of? What do you treasure the most? I mean, think about the punchline to Jesus' teaching here. You've probably heard it before you came in here today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We can tell what you love by how you spend your money. I mean, if you're looking at my bank statement, you're thinking this guy has a weird obsession with pumpkin spice latte. I mean, this is, this is going too far. And yes, it, it is. But when you think about what do you treasure most, some of you are thinking about an heirloom. Maybe it's a, a piece of jewelry that was given to you, or, or maybe it's a piece of furniture. Some of you, um, especially the guys, this could be guys or, or ladies. Some of you are thinking about a vehicle, your boat. Maybe a second home, if you've got that. Maybe it's something in your, in your man cave that's 4K and beautiful and you're just excited about it. We can look at where you spend your money and tell what you love. It's just a fact. It's where your heart is. In some cases, it's what your life revolves around. And here is Jesus's invitation today. This is crucial. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This, this talk that he's giving, this teaching that he's giving has this whole idea in it of put aside some of your treasure into a storehouse. Everyone would have had an idea about what he's talking about. A farmer would have a storehouse, someone who's, who's just even just living off the land. If they were smart, they would have a storehouse. They would be storing grain for, for later days. I mean, a, a king would have a storehouse. King Herod would have had a storehouse full of treasure and everyone would know about it. They would bring the treasure to the king on his rough days to, to cheer him up. The storehouse when I was growing up was my grandparents' basement. I don't know if any of you feel this way. There were treasures in the basement. There were also canned foods in the basement. Is anybody still canning? Anybody at all? There's like three people now in two services combined, uh, which means if anything goes wrong, Ron Paul and these three people are the only people going to be eating. And so like it's no one's doing this anymore, but I could go to the basement and I could get canned soups and, and vegetables and, and all of these kinds of things. And Jesus says, if you will consider everything that God has put in your hands as being for his work and for other people, then you will have treasure in heaven. What is it? I don't know, but I believe Jesus that he's saying, if you will take everything that God has put in your hands and put it into his kingdom purposes, you will have treasure in heaven, full to overflowing treasure. Listen, there is, you cannot get away from it. There is a direct connection, direct connection between how we treat what God has given us from the air and our lungs to how we use our time and seizing a life that you cannot walk away from.
And only a self-sustaining God can satisfy us with a life worth living. If there's something missing, then it's, it's missing from his involvement in your life. And God's plan for how we treat the things that he has put in our hands is not really for his benefit. He's fine. It's for ours. Which is why Jesus says in some of his most practical teaching, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Understand even in this direct connection between money and possessions and the life that God wants you to have, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. God wants your heart. With everything he's got, he wants your heart. We're gonna go backwards one more time. The book of Malachi, it's at the very end of the Old Testament. You go to Matthew, you're already there. Turn left one book and you're there. It's a beautiful thing. The book of Malachi. It's one of my favorites in the Old Testament. It's, it's a little strange book. It's a, it's a short book, but it's about a time in history where the nation of Israel are not giving to God according to what he has taught them earlier in the Old Testament as it applies to their worship and as it applies to the sacrificial part of their worship. They're supposed to sacrifice their first and their best. And they were giving. They were being good. They were sort of following the rules. They were giving, but they were giving their leftovers. They were not giving God the first and the best. They were rather maybe even waiting to see how God was treating them and then they would decide what to give to him. That's how some of you act at restaurants. You know who you are. I mean, honestly, you've got a tip amount in your mind. Maybe it's a percentage. But from the time that poor guy and girl walk in, you're just deducting. This is how the nation of Israel is, is, is acting. I mean, you're sitting there at the table. I ordered a Coke. And just because y'all don't have Coke and you just have Pepsi, that doesn't mean you bring me a Pepsi without any foreknowledge on my own because it is not the same. Okay, let's get this straight right now. If you don't have Coke, please tell me you don't have Coke. That's gonna cost you. It's supposed to be free bread at this restaurant before I have my steak. And not three-day-old free bread that other people didn't eat. But hot, fresh, ready, um, before I sit down. It's been 15 minutes. And it's cold bread. That's going to cost you. It's snarky, isn't it? It's kind of awful. But it's how the people of God are treating their worship in the book of Malachi. It's this kind of critical give only when it's convenient, give only when I feel like it, worship, and it's characterizing the people of God. And as awful and as snarky as it is, how does God treat his people? This is a beautiful thing. God extends one of his richest promises to his people in even this disrespectful state. Look at Malachi chapter three, verse seven. It says this, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's just good. Consider whatever is going on in your life today and no matter what is going on and if you don't hear anything else, consider the compassion of a loving heavenly father. When we are at our worst, he loves us still. When we are at our most disrespectful, he loves us still. So in response to this beautiful promise of God, return to me and I will return to you. 
the people ask a question in verse eight. How shall we return? Now stop right there for just a moment. Pause on this. He says that there's an acknowledgement here by the people that even though they've been doing a lot of things well, that even though they've been following the commandments sort of, they have been giving, even though they've been doing that, there is an acknowledgement that something is not right. That same acknowledgement from the rich, young app developer who would talk to Jesus. Something is not right. There is something I'm still lacking. I'm not experiencing the life that God has for me to the full. And God agrees again with the premise, just as Jesus would agree with the premise in the New Testament. God agrees in Malachi chapter three. And so now God, through the prophet, he begins to speak. And he says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, what is God saying? In the Old Testament, this language of blessing and cursing is used quite a bit. The idea is that you're either blessed in our obedience to know God's active presence in our lives or we're cursed to deal with our own selfishness. But with his, understand, with his compassion as a backdrop, God the Father says, when you are not giving to me, you are missing out on living in the blessing that comes with obedience. And then God begins to talk about the storehouse. Just as Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, God the Father talks about it here in verse 10. He says this, bring the full tithe, 10% is what tithe means, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says the storehouse is the place of worship. Those days, the temple, these days, the church. And God says, I dare you. It's the only time he dares us in the scriptures to fill the house of worship And watch what I will do. Put me to the test and watch. I will open up the windows of heaven. Bring me the tithe, God says to his people. And since the time of Abraham, Abraham responded spontaneously once in a moment of worship and gave God 10% and it just stuck. It stuck from Genesis still to this day. But not just 10%, the first 10%. Make me a priority, God says. Put me to the test and watch and see what I will do. Matthew six thirty three says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's not a message on prosperity. It's not give a dollar and two will be given to you. It's not that God's gonna heap on you, but rather it says that he will order your life. Seek me first and all these things will be put in order for your good and for his glory. So in the Old Testament, we've got this, principle of 10%. God says, give it to me and I will open up the windows of heaven. And then Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell it all. So thankfully the apostle Paul building on both of these teachings in second Corinthians chapter nine brings some clarity to it. And he says it this way. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now understand this. We hear this through our American ears. We read it through our American eyes. This is not a capitalism plan for the church. This is not a business plan. This is not a prosperity plan, even for your life. It's a priority plan. It's a plan for your own heart and life and putting God in the center of it so that you can seize a life that you will not ever be able to walk away from. There is a direct connection. But we know in the church today that there isn't a direct connection for a lot of people. We know that less than 30% of the average attendance of a church give to a church. We know that the average giving, if you were to look at it across the board, is 2 or 3% of someone's income, which is better than zero. It's a great place to start. And according to the Apostle Paul, if that's all God has put on your heart, then that's all God has put on your heart. But he says, if you will sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And more than just thinking about it, even from a financial picture, he says, imagine the grace of God being poured on you so that you have all sufficiency in everything that you do. Paul says his grace will abound and you will abound. The grace of God will overflow in your life and you will experience the overflow of God. Eugene Peterson says, God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything more than just ready to do what needs to be done. There is a direct connection between how we handle the things that God has put into our hands. From the air in our lungs to your talents and gifts to the money that he's put in your wallet and your bank account. There is a direct connection. And how we put those things into play for the kingdom of God and for others and being able to seize a life that will last, that will outlast you, that will last into eternity, that will create a storehouse for you in heaven. There is a direct connection. Now in an observing Jewish home, they keep Sabbath from Friday night sunset to Saturday night at sunset. No work. They're just doing whatever they do. They all observe it a little bit differently, but just really just, just chill out, prepare the food in advance, total rest. And there's a little ceremony that now dates back hundreds of years that accompanies the end of the Sabbath. It's called the Havdalah. It marks the end of rest and the beginning of work. And there's a little song that is sung. It's kind of a prayer. I'm not going to sing for you. Don't worry. That asks for blessing at the end of Sabbath in the beginning of work. You ask for blessing on your life and your work, on your children and on your health. Whether it be great or small, your life, your children, your wealth, your health, everything. And it goes with this. So I'll get my little bag here. Give me a little bit of a hard time. In order to symbolize this, you have a saucer and a wine glass. Now, just to make sure I'm not being a stumbling block to anybody or creating an issue that doesn't need to be there, I'm using good Southern communion wine uh, today, uh, Welch's sparkling grape juice. So here we go. And here's how the ceremony goes. 
as the song is being sung, and as we're thanking God for this period of rest, someone in the home begins to pour. Now this glass symbolizes your life. And the wine would symbolize your work and your wealth. Here's where the wine analogy breaks down. That's probably even a little much to get out of here and and drive away safely. So the wine analogy goes away and you just keep pouring. And you just keep pouring. I mean, what do you want God to do in your life? You just keep pouring. And you just pour and pour and pour until it overflows. Now understand any Jewish ceremony, they don't understand this, but you need to understand this. Any Jewish ceremony is incomplete without Jesus. And Jesus has taught us something today directly to the rich young ruler and from the book of Malachi. He says this, if you will give it to me, God himself will pour out on you and you will discover the kingdom of God in the overflow. The evidence of the life of God is in the overflow. A life that counts is in the overflow. A life that lasts, a life that will outlast me. Bring your treasure into the storehouse of God and lay up for yourselves treasure in a kingdom yet to come. Test me and see what I will do. And everything that I have put into your hands is not just for you, but it's for other people. It's for the kingdom of God. It's to, the, it's to expand the kingdom of God. So why would you ever stop pouring, but keep going with everything you've got? God, I pray that you will pour out on me just as much as you possibly can so that the evidence of God can flow in and through me into a world that is in desperate need of the overflow. They're in desperate need. If we as a people, if we give a little bit and just say, I'm good, thank you very much, thank you. That's just giving based on how we're feeling, based on whether or not it's convenient. But if we give according to what God has put in our hearts, we begin to fill the glass. But a full glass is not, a, is not the goal. The full glass is not the aim. The aim is the overflow. The aim is that God would open up the windows of heaven and pour out onto his people. And again, it's not a prosperity plan. It's a request for the presence of God to be in and through every single area of my life. And let me tell you the great thing about this is if we can get this entire church on board with obeying God in this area, with seizing a life that's truly life, it's unthinkable what God might do. This is not just for our families, this is for our church. I mean, Jesus called the church to be a called out group of people on mission to reveal him, to reveal him. Jesus is counting on the church to be a place where his people go over and above and create the over and create this overflow. He's counting on us. The world is counting on us, even if they, they don't know it. I mean, he is 
counting on us to expand what we are doing on this campus in order to reach this community. He's counting on us to be out in the community of Northwest Atlanta. He's counting on us to go after the football players and to share Jesus with them. He is counting on us to give the gifts that will bring hope at Christmas time. He is counting on us to go over and above and plant churches in the most unengaged, darkest cities in our country. He is counting on us to train and encourage and go after those church planters and their wives, give them everything that they need so that they can operate from a place of healthiness and lead from a place of strength, prevailing churches that will push back the darkness. He is counting on us to overflow. He is counting on us to overflow in the world. I got off the phone with our our lead guy in Burkina Faso yesterday, John Arnold. We're talking in the truck. It's amazing. John oversees everything we do in this little West African country. And can I tell you, the reports are in from the last couple of weeks. It's amazing. Thanks to our partners. Thanks to this church and the initiative you started called Engage Burkina. Can I tell you, in the last eight months, we've put in 116 wells. 116. Listen. 60 to 75,000 people that did not have access to clean water at Christmas time have access to clean water now. And a majority of those wells have some words on them from John chapter seven, where Jesus said, actually, I am the living water. He who believes in me will never thirst again. There's a pastor in charge of every single one of those wells proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the animus, to the Muslim, to the atheist, to anyone who will listen. You can come and have water, but we've got so much more. He is counting on us to be the overflow. Listen, there is a direct connection between your obedience with your money and possessions and your willingness to get to the overflow and living a life that counts. It's a direct connection. First Timothy chapter six, one more time. We're going to wrap this thing up. First Timothy chapter six, We started in verse 12 in your group this week. You should read the whole thing. We're gonna go down to verse 18. The apostle Paul talking to to Timothy, he's giving him some instruction. He's giving pastors some instruction, which is why I've taught this message the way that I've taught it today. It's from this right here, verse 18. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share in this way. They will lay up treasure for themselves. There's that storehouse language again. As a firm foundation for the coming age so that they can take hold, so that they can seize, so they can wrap their hands around, so that they can look Jesus in the eye and say, I'm not walking away from this, so that they can take hold of the life that is truly life. May we aggressively seize a life sustained by God himself. You may feel like you are too small to matter. That's a lie. What God has put in your hands, he wants to use for his kingdom and the lives of others. Your anything could be someone else's everything. You just begin where you are. You take a first step of obedience and then you move to doing that over and over until you go over and above and together you and God create the overflow. Would you bow your heads with me? Today, I just want to ask every head be bowed, every eye be closed. I mean, we're, 
It's easy to say that we're doing okay with this. We are the church of the generosity experiment. And for many of you, that was a time where you gave for the first time. And you gave because of something you, you loved and you were cheering on, you wanted to be involved and that's awesome. But maybe the challenge for you is to every time you get paid, continue the experiment with God. The God who says, put me to the test. It's not a prosperity plan. It's a plan to put God in the middle of all of your circumstances and concerns because you have put your life in the middle of his. There's some of you in here, you're faithful givers. We wouldn't be here without you. So maybe today, some encouragement to you would just be, let's put the cheerful back in cheerful giving. Let's put the celebration back in giving. We are giving back just a little bit to him because all that we have belongs to him. It comes from him, every good and perfect gift. So according to what the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter nine, right now, I can't tell you what your next step is, but the spirit of God can. Some of you were raised on the tithe and you know that anything less than that is falling short. Some of you are not giving at all. And today you may just wanna determine to start. Some of you have a person in poverty or an organization or something in your life that God has been pushing you to give to and you haven't done it yet. I don't know what it is today. I cannot tell you what to give, but the spirit can. Can we just take a moment with heads bowed and eyes closed? And every person in here just say, spirit of the living God, show me what's next. believers in Jesus Christ are praying and seeking the spirit of God in their own lives and your seats today. We've walked in here today and you don't give anything because you don't know the one who gave his life for you. Today, I want you to know God is a generous God because he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that you would not perish, die without him, but you would have eternal life and an opportunity at that treasure in heaven. If you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Right now in your own words, you can reach out to him and say, God, thank you for giving your son to me. Thank you for giving his life for mine. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. Three days later, he raised him up that I could take hold of life. It's truly life. God, show me the way. I want to begin my journey with you today. If that's you, please give us an opportunity to come alongside of you. If you pray just a simple prayer of what you understand about him now, reaching out for salvation, God meets you in that place. He calls you a son or daughter. He calls you his own. Would you please take that Get Connected card you received on the way in today, that connection card, 
Take a minute, fill it out, take it to our help center, or you can bring it to one of our prayer team members in front of the stage after the service. We'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you. Holy Spirit, Father God, thank you for challenging me. We thank you for your word. May we look Jesus in the eye and believe in him enough to obey whatever he puts on our hearts today. And God, may this incredibly generous church, the church of the generosity experiment, inspiring churches all around this country, God, may you continue to push us to get to the overflow that we may be a part of revival in our community, in our country, in our world. And we'll give you all the glory because it is all about you. It is all about Jesus today. In his name we pray, amen. If we can help you in any way, get connected, pray for you, whatever it is, fill out that card, take it to our help center on the way out. I hope that whoever your team is, that you remember that Jesus loves you uh, and that you go out of here pushing and asking him to help you get to the overflow. Have a great week, everybody.